Kevin Markwick.
that's Lola, of course. Um, can you hear me out there? <laughs> From 1970, in actual fact. Hello, it's Kevin Markwick here. And I'm here for the next 13 weeks, I'm afraid. And uh, some of you may know, I run the local cinema, the Picture House. And what I'm going to do until Christmas is take you through the history of cinema in the 1970s. Particularly through the lens of a provincial cinema, whilst at the same time trying to take a little more of a global uh, look at what's going on. It might work. I'm a tad rusty. If I keep to time, it'll be an absolute miracle. But please, please sit back and enjoy it. If you can. I'm going to try at least. I've got all sorts of uh, interesting film music for you. And one or two bits of pop music from the period thrown in as well. So, uh, as they say, here goes nothing. So, it's 1970. And not only was the world a different place, the way the films were released was quite different. Um, this cheese fest is the theme from Love Story, which is listed as the top grossing film of 1970 according to the chart in Wikipedia, anyway. Although it wasn't actually released until December the 16th in the US and not until March 1971 in the UK. So where does that leave me? So what I'm going to do, uh, the plan is to take a free-form sort of approach to the history of 70s cinema, for what it's worth. I mean, this isn't, you know, definitive. This is just me talking nonsense. Or at least what I understand about 70s cinema anyway. Because um, there's a big difference, even now, between what the charts show us and what's actually going on out in the sticks. And let's face it, we are out in the sticks. So the 70s are now universally acknowledged as a seminal time for cinema, particularly American mainstream cinema, when we saw the emergence of maverick directors like Francis Coppola and Martin Scorsese, along with some who burnt bright for a while and then faded away. Directors like Hal Ashby and Bob Raffleson. In the UK, we struggled with softcore pornography and TV spin-offs, basically. That was my childhood. Softcore pornography and TV spin-offs. But we were still able to produce dazzling works by Ken Russell and Nick Rogue. Uh, I think Derek Jarman was in there somewhere as well. See the 70s? Yeah. Sorry, this music's making me feel a bit ill. Anyway, apologies if anyone feels we're giving world cinema less room uh, in our time travel capsule. Because clearly there was as much great cinema coming from Russia, Europe and the rest of the world, but it was far more difficult to access in those days. And using a provincial commercial cinema as a jumping off point, you can imagine Tarkovsky didn't get much of a look in. 
So a decade of massive change in cinema, yes, but in cinemas? Actually, the decline continued apace. In fact, admissions continued to plummet all the way to 1984 when the UK hit rock bottom. So to imagine everyone was lining up to experience Taxi Driver and Network and all that groovy new Hollywood cinema is actually mostly a fallacy. There were bright spots commercially, of course, not least the arrival of Star Wars in 1977, which can be argued ushered in the dumbing down of cinema and made it the province of 12-year-old boys, something that continues today with endless Marvel films and films about stupid big things hitting each other. But that's not for now. So here we go then, 1970. Where do we start? With the Duke himself, True Grit. Part of Elmer Bernstein's score for True Grit in... Uh, oh, that's the wrong one. <laughs> there you go, you see? Part of Elmer Bernstein's score uh, for True Grit, uh, which um, was a film that finally gave John Wayne his Oscar for playing the bluff old cove Rooster Cogburn. 
Uh, in many ways, it was a conventional Western, but with Wayne playing against type and embracing his age, it was the first tentative steps towards the more reflective reappraisal of the Western during the 1970s. In fact, it certainly paved the way for Wayne's arguably better performance as the dying gunfighter in The Shootist in 1976, his final film. So, uh, how did it fare in Uckfield? Well, here's the interesting thing, you see. Uh, like I said, films are released slightly differently. Um, the UK release was December 1969, uh, which it would have played in the West End. And... Uh, We've played it on January the 18th, 1970, for seven days. Uh, had 1,322 admissions. Took £323 and 14 shillings. I'm f- going to be full of really exciting statistics like that because I've got the book. Uh, I've got the special book. Here it is, uh, of all the records, of all the stuff, uh, of all the films that we played and all the money that we took. Uh, I'm already... Am I running late? Actually, no, not too bad. Um... I'm going to do an ad break, and when we come back, uh, a different kind of cowboy. Here's something for everyone. Science made in a cup for everyone. Science made on a stick for everyone. Science made here's chalk ice for everyone. Science made it's ice cream time with science made. Kevin Markwick. Oakfield FM. John Barry's uh, remarkable score for Midnight Cowboy, um, John Sessinger's uh, film, which won him an Oscar for Best Picture and Best Director. Uh, it also garnered nominations for actor for both Dustin Hoffman and John Voight. Always took money, that one, um, given its rather downbeat subject matter. It would play forever and ever, actually. Uh, quite often in a double bill with The Graduate. 
uh, Midnight Cowboy and the Graduate was always always playing. Um, and the UK uh, release actually was September 1969, uh, and it arrived seven days for seven days on March the 15th in Uckfield. Uh, 1,272 admissions. Remember, there's only one screen then, and it took 336 pounds and 12 shillings. I'm sure there are better mathematicians out there than me that could work out the the per head on that one. Uh, it would turn up, as I said, all the way through the 70s. Uh, Midnight Cowboy, uh, hugely popular, and I believe somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. It was the uh, first X certificate film to win uh, the Best Picture Academy Award, because. Um, what you're noticing here is that, and this has been interesting, as my as I do each year by year, I've got to work out um, when the film came out, when it played in Upfield, and kind of find a balance between the two because we want to keep on track. This is 1970. It's not all about 1969, but things were quite different then. Um, Upfield was way behind release. In fact, uh, when we came here in 1964, it was about a year and a half behind release. Um and what happened was there was a cinema, the Odeon in Lewis, and there was a cinema in Crowborough, and they barred Uckfield, which meant that um, until Lewis and uh, Crowborough had finished with the film, Uckfield couldn't play it. Uh, I mean, all would be highly illegal now. But both Lewis and uh, Lewis was barred by Brighton, and uh, Crowborough was barred by Tunbridge Wells. So actually, Uckfield was way down the pecking order. It meant that we couldn't play it until uh, Brighton had finished with it. Then Lewis had finished with it, and then Uckfield came in, and same with Tommy Joels to Crowbert to Uckfield. So the films were, were often very, very late. Uh, and this also meant um, even James Bond would take a while to make its way to Uckfield. Uh, premiering uh, in London in December 1969, uh, Mr Lazenby as Mr Bond finally arrived in Uckfield on May the 3rd in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And again, the music is by John Barry.
On a match to Secret Service was George Lazenby's only appearance as Bond, having uh, quit the role before, I believe, they'd even finished shooting. Um, directed by Peter Hunt, who'd been the editor on most of the Connery Bonds, uh, he tried to bring it up to date with mixed results, um, and he never worked on a Bond film again, as far as I know, although he did direct some quite good Dodger Moore films, ironically. Oh, really? Um, later in the 1970s, Shout at the Devil being one of the better ones. Um, so Cubby Broccoli uh, subsequently backed a container lorry full of cash up Sean Connery's drive to get him back for Diamonds Are Forever, which seemed like a sensible move. Um, now, one of the things... So you're listening to Upfield FM. It's Monday night. And Kevin Markwick here. I'm going to give you, if whether you like it or not, <laughs> a history of uh, movies in the 1970s. And tonight we're doing 1970. Next week we'll do 1971. You get the idea. Uh, and if you're listening... Please do get in touch with the show. Let me know um, what you think um, and whether you have any memories of of cinema in the in the, when, in the 70s. And particularly, actually, if you went to the cinema in Outfield in the 1970s, that would be that would be great to hear from you. Actually, uh, or anybody else, anybody on the podcast wants to chip in, that would be great to hear from you guys as well. So um, now, uh, here's the thing of absolute wonderment. Uh, how I could should really tell you how to get in touch, shouldn't I? Um, at Kevin Markwick on Twitter. You can uh, hit me up there. That's a good way to do it. There is a Facebook page, The Kevin Markwick Show, which I haven't looked at for a while because I've been off the air, uh, amongst other excuses. Uh, or you can uh, actually email us at... Um, uh, what's it? <laughs> Studio at arcfieldfm.co.uk. But it would be great to hear from you because, you know, it's nice to know someone's out there listening. Uh, what was I saying before I remember what I had to say? It was, oh, uh, a thing of absolute wonderment. If you want a snapshot of uh, the counterculture in 1970, then the documentary film Woodstock was one of the places to see it. Uh, a filmed record of argu arguably one of the most famous rock festivals of all time. Uh, directed by Michael Wadley, and uh, with its use of split screen and cinema verite-style camera work, it became the benchmark for rock docs for years to come. And this... I hope you're ready for this. This is the staggering Soul Sacrifice by Santana live at Woodstock.
That's amazing stuff, isn't it? Live uh, at Woodstock in 1970, uh, Santana, Soul Sacrifice. Uh, what would you have given to be there, eh? Standing in your own poo in a big field? Um, or, or someone else's poo, probably, <laughs> if we're honest. Uh, that was, uh, you know, that documentary was really long. It was like three hours, nearly three hours. Uh, and, of course, it was in the film days. I showed it a lot, actually, because we were still playing it in the 80s. Always did one on a Sunday or a Sunday-Monday booking. And the prints were in ribbons. It was a nightmare keeping it going for three whole hours with... Uh, the ends of the reels missing and jumping around anyway. Um, I've got to take a break now, uh, and when we come back, something completely different. Now's the time for ice cream. No, no, no. Now's the time for ice cream. No, no, no. Cool, cool ice cream. Now's the time for ice cream. Have some now. Kevin Markwick. 105 Uckfield FM. What a funny noise it's making. It's talking to us. All engines talk. What's it saying? It's saying chitty 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 bang bang chitty 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 bang bang chitty chitty bang bang chitty chitty bang bang chitty chitty bang bang 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 oh you chitty chitty bang bang chitty chitty bang bang we love you and in Chitty chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, what we'll do near, far, in a motor car, oh what a happy time we'll spend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fendered friend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fendered friend. Chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, oh you, chitty chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, we love you. In chitty chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, what we'll do near, far, in a motor car, oh, what a happy time we'll spend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fender friend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fender friend. You're sleek as a thoroughbred. Your seats are a feathered bed. You'll turn everybody's head today. We'll glide on our motor trip with pride in our leadership. The envy. Yeah, there you go, the Sherman Brothers music for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I was listening to that and it just suddenly occurred to me after like 40 years that we don't say Fender. If they were English. They wouldn't have said Fender. Our fine four bumpered friend, I guess, wouldn't have, you know, what a Fender was. <sighs> anyway, uh, that was the huge family hit Chitty Chitty Bang Bang sung by Dick Van Dyke and Sally Ann Howes and two Moppet Hair kids whose name escapes me. Uh, and that was another example of a film that took a very long time to get to Arkfield. Uh, I've got another example later that will give me the chance to to f fully explain why that was the case. Uh, however, you know, it was released in December 1968 and it played for the first time on March the 29th, 1970. I mean, it was a year and a half. 2,698 admissions, £512. Uh, 
uh, and it must have done, he must have thought it was okay, the old man, because uh, he put it in again on August the 31st for six days at the fag end of the uh, school holidays. Now, uh, Ken Russell, whose name will crop up a few times over the next next few weeks, uh, was one of the um, few British film directors making challenging films in the 1970s. Uh, he cut his teeth at the BBC making films for... Uh, the popular monitor program, mainly about uh, great classical composers, a theme he would return to again and again in the cinema. His first major cinema success, however, was Women in Love, a very Ken Russell take on D.H. Lawrence's novel that featured male nude wrestling and an Oscar-winning performance from Glenda Jackson. Take your pick which one you prefer. I'm not going to judge you. Uh, a really strong sense of time and place and some good emoting from Oliver Reed combined to make actually a very British picture. The score is rarely heard, actually, and it was fine and was by George Delarue. <laughs> Women in Love was another film which would play quite often through the 70s um, and it had a September 1969 release and turned up for the first time in Upfield on June the 14th 1970 uh, 1,100 missions which is pretty good uh, 291 pounds um, you're listening to Kevin Markwick on Uckfield FM. Uh, I'm going to take you through the 70s for the next 13 weeks. Uh, I haven't quite worked out what we're going to do when we get to week 11. Perhaps you've got some suggestions. Uh, play two hours of silence. Don't darken our door again. Whatever it is, if you want to let me know, hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Markwick. And let me know what you're thinking, whether you came to the cinema in the 70s, whether you came to Uckfield in the 70s, or whether you were even born in the 70s. 
Um, and or you can email me at Kevin. Uh, no, you can't. You can email me at. Um, studio at uckfieldfm.co.uk there are many ways there's a way of interacting on the website actually uckfieldfm.co.uk there's a kind of messagey thing and you can also look at a webcam in the back of my head uh okay uh a biggie now um in fact as soon as i play this you'll know exactly what it is raindrops keep falling on my head and just like the guy whose feet are too seems to fit those raindrops are falling on my head they keep falling so i just did me some talking to the sun and i said i didn't like the way he got things done sleeping on the job those raindrops are falling Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head by B.J. Thomas, uh, written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David, of course, from the original soundtrack of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You just keep thinking, Butch. That's what you're good at. Uh, released in February 1970 in the UK, it arrived in Uckfield on June the 28th. Oh, yeah. It was virtually spanking brand new. Uh, it played for seven days. Uh, I haven't got the gross in front of me. Oh. I can look it up in the special book. Uh, it remains a hugely popular film today, and the slick script by William Goldman. You know, think you used enough dynamite there, Butch. And uh, for a moment there, I thought we were really in trouble. 
uh, and the undeniable bromance chemistry of uh, Redford and Newman are a joy. There's uh, another title that would turn up again and again, uh, as, as, as me saying it turns up again and again, because you could play old films, you see. This is the point. There was no um, DVD or satellite television. And when a film uh, actually finally arrived on TV, it was a massive thing. I remember I was so excited when uh, Butch Cassidy finally turned up on the TV. I'm going to say very late 70s, possibly even the early 80s. I don't know. It was a long time anyway before Fox sold its television. Um, And uh, anyway, so... It would play Butch Cassidy, yeah. Uh, except when we fell out with Fox, which happened a few times for some reason. Not that we would fall out with them now, you understand. But um, I remember my dad used to say that uh, you had to be out with somebody because you couldn't possibly play all the films. Slightly spurious reason. <laughs> but he seemed to know what he was doing. Anyway, uh, this is one more track from uh, Butch Cassidy. I'm uh, playing two because it's such a big title. Uh, this was the uh, Haunting Not Going Home.
going home from uh, Burt Bacharach's score for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which, oh, relief, was a film released in 1970 and showed in 1970. Thank goodness for that. Uh, actually, the one I was going to tell you about was Where Eagles Dare, which is a massively popular film still. Um, kind of boy's own uh, Alistair MacLean adventure with Richard Burton, Clint Eastwood, etc., etc. But I wanted to use that one uh, as an example of what, uh, how things have changed because that was actually released in... Uh, let's have a look. It was um, December 1968, and we played it uh, in uh, August... 1970 so you know uh just getting on for year and a half old now the reason for that was because that was a 70 millimeter release which meant that um it played exclusively in london for three months probably at the odeon leicester square or thereabouts uh 70 mil being the format um 70 millimeter film most cinemas to the all cinemas around 35 millimeter film but 70 mil was sexy and clever and wonderful and lovely and all the rest of it so that had a what they call a road show uh presentation so it would play in the west end uh for some months and then uh it would go out around to the key cities uh brighton's big 70 millimeter theater was the regent uh, which sat at the top by the clock tower. It's not there anymore. It's actually Boots, I believe now. It was demolished. But that had 3,500 seats uh, and 70 mil. There was 70 mil in the Astoria, uh, which is on the level, which has, I think, just been demolished. Um, but the big 70 mil theatre at the time, which also ran Chitty Chitty Bang Bang for a long time, uh, was was that one. And that ran where Eagles Dare for, I, I'm going to say, two or three months at a time. Uh, and so by the time you actually had the, uh, and then you had the key, other key cities, then the 35mm release, and then we finally played it for two weeks. We had to play it for two weeks because it was still, even even in the mid-1970, it was still a posh picture as far as MGM were concerned. So, um, and we had to charge special prices as well. They insisted that we put our price up because this was still a posh film. Can you imagine a year and a half? I can't even think what was showing a year and a half ago. Um <laughs> Probably a man with his underpants on over his trousers. Uh, but quite extraordinary. So we had to have special prices, charge more. I think advanced booking as well, which is quite unusual at the time. Anyway, so I'm going to play you a little bit. Uh, the intermission music, actually. That's the other thing with the roadshow films. You had the big intermission uh, music, um, which... Uh, because obviously being 70 mil, actually the reels, reels were more full of film. But that's another technical thing I don't want to bore you with. Well, I can bore you with me, bore you with it if you ask me. Um, but because you got less film, because there were five sprocket holes uh, instead of four and you got less film on, on a reel. So a nice uh, intermission. Uh, what I'm going to do, actually, I've got to do an ad break and I'll play you some Where Eagles Dare after we do the ad break. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know that Suncrush, your favourite orange drink, is in this cinema now? It's in a lovely container you can see through, so you know when it's time to buy some more. Ha ha! Suncrush is on sale now! Kevin Markwick. 105 Uckfield FM.
Ron Goodwin's music for Where Eagles Dare uh, as uh, released in 1968, December 1968, finally played in Upfield. I'm looking at the book now, uh, July the 20th, 1970, so a year and a half off release. It actually played 13 days because uh, my father would never run a film for 14 days because he would not have two Sundays the same because Sunday was the busiest day of the week and uh, he felt we couldn't afford to have two Sundays the same. So he must have bullied MGM into uh, dropping the first Sunday, July the 19th, with the... (laughs) With the double feature, The Fly and The Wasp Woman. You have to say, that is a brilliant double feature. I mean, they were really old films at the time, even by 1970. I think The Fly was the 50s, wasn't it? Um, But, yeah, I can see him laughing about it now. He thought that was hilarious, The Fly and The Wasp Woman. Uh, and so Where Eagles Dare played two weeks. It got had 1,367 admissions the first week, 1,601 admissions the second week. That's because it had the Sunday in the second week, 343 people. So strange times. And that music actually was the uh, intermission music, uh, which it was actually a combination of the play out from the first half and then the overture to the second half. Um, I mean, because uh, it wasn't even that long, I don't think, Where Eagles. It was about two... Two hours twenty, two hours thirty, but because it was this big seventy millimeter roadshow release, uh, it had to have an interval in it. Uh, so you're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's Uckfield FM. Nineteen seventy is the year. Can you remember it? I can sort of remember some of this stuff. I mean, I can remember a lot of this stuff. I'm talking about. I was eight years old at the time, so um, or coming up for eight. Actually, it's my birthday in a couple of weeks. So yeah, I was coming up for for eight years old. I do remember seeing Where Eagles Day on that run. And playing where he goes down the garden and all the broadsword calling Danny Boy and all that stuff. Um, anyway, moving on to more intellectual conversations. Robert Altman was a director who came along just before the American New Wave. Uh, he was a little older than them, but a singular talent whose films continue to influence filmmakers today, not least P.T. Anderson with films like Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Uh, the freewheeling and often sprawling film that made his name was MASH. Altman's use of overlapping dialogue and long lenses uh, to give the action a voyeuristic quality that was immensely authentic resulted in a mad comedy about the insanity and, actually, the boredom of war on foreign soil. I, was, I, I mean, realistically, it was a, it was a thinly veiled uh, comment on Vietnam, I think, which in 1970 you couldn't make a film about Vietnam, certainly not an anti-war film about Vietnam. They would come in waves as we got towards the end of the 70s. Uh, it remains as entertaining now as it was then. Uh, it spawned a much less edgy but equally, equally popular TV show uh, and, of course, this song. Through early morning fog I see Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me I realize and I can see That suicide is painless It brings on many changes And I can take or leave it If I please The game of life is hard to play I'm gonna lose it anyway The losing card I'll someday lay So 
Suicide is painless. I, you know, keeping this show on time with my ramblings is proving quite quite tricky. Um, so that was released in June 1970 and played in Upfield on October the 18th <gasps> for six days. Uh, so yeah, ooh, catching up. Um, 903 admissions, 274 pounds. Now, what I did want to talk about was uh, performance. Um, although it was actually shot in 1968, it was released in 1970, co-directed by Donald Camel and Nick Rogue, uh, a mind-blowing film about identity, the nature of creativity, as well as a sort of swan song for the swinging 60s. Warner Brothers were so terrified of it, they refused to release it uncut or at all for two years. And what they thought they were getting, hilariously, was a film like Help or Hard Day's Night, uh, which had done so well for the Beatles. Uh, and this time the crazy antics would feature the Rolling Stones. Uh, I mean, really? What were they thinking? Uh, what they got was a film full of sex and drugs and violence. Um, yeah, it remains one of my favourite films and still retains, actually, quite a lot of its power to shock and confuse. James Fox is an on-the-run gangster who hides out in the home of a rock star played by Mick Jagger. And as the film progresses, their identities become confused and both are challenged to reappraise what they know to be true. Uh, to this day, I can't work out who's in the Rolls Royce at the end. If you're familiar with the film, you tell me, because I've freeze-framed it up the wazoo and I can't work it out. Uh, and actually, there was one song. That's all Warner Brothers got. One song uh, by Mick Jagger in, in, in the film. It's called Memo from Turner. There was also a good score, uh, some good music by Ry Cuda as well. Um, but have a listen to this. This is uh, Mick Jagger from the extraordinary film Performance. on a hot and dusty night We were eating eggs and sammies when the black man there drew his knife 
Oh, you drowned that June Rampton as he washed his sleeveless shirt. You know, that Spanish-speaking gentleman, the one that we all call Kurt. Come now, gentlemen, I know that some mistake. How forgetful I'm becoming now you fix your business straight. I remember you in Hemlock Road, 1956. You're a faggy little leather boy with a smaller piece of stick. You're a lashing, smashing hunk of man. Your sweat shines sweet and strong. Your organ's working perfectly, but there's a part that's not screwed on. I want you at the Coke convention back in 1965. You're the Mesprit executive I see heavily advertised. You're the great, great man whose daughter licks policeman's buttons clean. You're the man who squats behind the man who works the soft machine. Calm down, gentlemen, your love is all I crave. You'll still be in the circus when I'm laughing. Laughing in my When the old men do the fighting And the young men all look on And the young girls eat their mother's meat From tubes of plastic cons Be wary, please, my gentle friends Of all the skins you breathe They have a tasty habit They eat the hands that bleed So remember who you say you are And keep your noses clean So be strong with your bees Oh, Rosie, dear, don't you think it's queer? So stop me if you please The baby's dead, my lady said You gentlemen, why you all work for me? Memo from Turner from a performance directed by Donald Camel and Nick Rogue. In 1968, but it played in 1970. It was finally released, uh, and uh, we—I don't think we played it until the following year. So, but I had to put that one in because it's one of the—I think—one of the key films uh, from 1970. I don't think I'm going to let you stay in the film business and all that. Listen to E equals MC squared by um, what they called. Uh, it's gone out of my head. Do you know, Aaron? 14 minutes in, that's not bad. It's the first time my head's emptied. Big audio dynamite. <gasps> yes, I pulled it around. Uh, anyway, back to Uckfield now and beneath the planet of the apes. Yes. 
a sequel to the 1968 work of seminal science fiction with Charlton Heston as the astronauts stranded on an upside-down planet where the apes rule supreme. Uh, I bring this up because, with hindsight, it seems scarcely credible today that the second film in an already, well, burgeoning, at least, successful franchise, horrible word, uh, was allowed to be so dark and hopeless. Nuclear annihilation and suffering are what awaits mankind in the distant future, for he will never learn from his mistakes. Uh, James Franciscus, he of telly mostly, plays the second astronaut sent to find Charlton Heston and what he finds is the destroyed remains of New York and mutant humans who worship a bomb. <laughs> Released in June 1970, it played in October 1970, so we are starting to catch up and uh, Leonard Rosenman did some great work, uh, obviously echoing um, Jerry Goldsmith's score, but he did some great work of his own with this equally dark and uh, dissonant score.
Underground, a cue from Leonard Rosenman's score for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I think that score is rather uh, wonderful, actually, and such a dark and unremittingly grim film until it got slightly silly uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes where the apes went the other way and went uh, back in time uh, and turned up in uh, 1970s. Uh, San Francisco, I believe, or was it San Diego? One or the other, anyway. Um, right, I'm running horribly late, so I need to do a break. And when we come back, some Ennio Morricone. Kevin Markwick. There you go. That's uh, Eno Morricone's score for Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Which I believe uh, Mr Tarantino uh, used in a film recently. That one in the shed. Can't remember what it's called. Hateful Eight. In a shed. It was actually directed by Don Siegel and it was kind of fun. Uh... Unusually, Clint Eastwood agreed to second billing under Shirley MacLaine, and the film was a moderate success worldwide. Why did I say it like that? Moderate success worldwide. Uh, another title that were played two days here, two days there. Uh, the first time I saw it actually was in a double feature with another very 1970 film, uh, the glorious disaster movie Airport. <laughs> Thank you. 
Alfred Newman's mighty score for George Seaton's equally mighty disaster movie, Airport, uh, which I suppose got slightly put to bed by airplane, but I don't care. Uh, apologies if I sound a little over-enthusiastic. 70s disaster movies are my weakness. Uh, and actually, this is one of the better ones. In fact, it's one of the best. Uh, the impossible glamour of air travel in the early 70s. Combined with the high melodrama uh, and a magnificent Boeing 707 stuck in the snow with George Kennedy chomping a cigar. Is there nothing these babies can't do and all that stuff? Um, huge cast, including Burt Lancaster, Gene Seberg, Dean Martin, a very young Jacqueline Bissett. Uh, Helen Hayes actually won the Academy Award as the little old lady stowaway. Uh, it was, you know, the 70s was the heyday of the disaster movie and, um, you know, to come was Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno and all that stuff. But this kind of set the benchmark, really. Uh, the UK release was March 1970 uh, and we played it in November, uh, November the 8th, for seven days. Uh, 1,042 admissions took £298. Now, you're listening to Kevin Marquick. It's 1970. Imagine, if you will... <laughs> Uh, shops not opening on a Sunday. Um, what else was it like when I was eight? I don't know. I can't remember. I was eight. Uh, in fact, to give you some um, kind of, what's the word, uh, ugh, context, uh, it was actually the Boeing, ironically, talking about the 707, the 747 made its first commercial passenger trip to London in 1970. Um, the US invaded Cambodia. Uh, the Beatles disbanded. We'll come on to more of that later. Um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That's easy to, easy for you to say. <laughs> um, what else? Oh, other things of historical note. I didn't care. I was at school. Where was I? I think it was at St Philip's at the time. Anyway, um, what's next? The Battle of Britain. Uh, that was another big budget uh, film. Uh, very popular, uh, telling it was a telling of the Battle of the Skies of Southern England in 1940. It wasn't the greatest film ever made, but the, the aircraft they built for it were, were actually amazing. Um, and uh, several of them continued to fly for a long time afterwards. And lots of fake hurricanes they built as well. But here's an amazing statistic. Battle of Britain was the number one film in the United Kingdom for a total of 14 weeks. I don't think that even, even Mamma Mia couldn't make 14 weeks. Uh, beginning on the 26th of September 1969 for four weeks, November 69 for seven weeks, February 1970 for two weeks, uh, and then again uh, on the 27th of February for another week in 1970. So it just goes to go back to what I was saying about where he was there. These films kind of went on forever. Um, but it didn't stop emissions declining overall, but that's a different story. Uh, finally arrived in Upfield, um, seven days on November the 22nd, 1,804 admissions, £457, not bad, but, you know, so late. Uh, November, I don't know. Uh, I'd love to have a chat with him and now and find out exactly, anyway, why. But the famous score by Ron Goodwin, which I'm sure you'll know, sounded very where Eagles Dairy. That was what he did, that kind of pompy, pompy, pompy march thing. Uh, was commissioned after the big wigs at UA, United Artists, didn't like the original score by, of all people, Sir William Walton, for goodness sake. 
uh, an absolute tragedy. Uh, as, as by all accounts, it was amazing. The only part of Walton's score that survived in the film actually is the incredible battle in the air, which accompanied what is the best sequence in the film uh, as the Luftwaffe launched one final wave of bombing over London. And it has this really kind of brilliant, almost dreamy, disconnected quality to it um, because there's not a lot of sound effects and Walton's music is just amazing.
great stuff. Uh, the only remaining piece of uh, Sir William Walton's music used in the um, British film Battle of Britain. Uh, well, British American film Battle of Britain, which had Battle of Britain, which had loads of people in it: Michael Caine, Robert Shaw, uh, Michael Caine, <laughs> Robert Shaw. Oh, loads, you know. It's probably on the telly all the time. But I remember loving it as a kid. Uh, but in later years, it, it didn't hold up quite so well, I don't think. Um, right, I think I need to do a break now. Uh, and when we come back, uh, we'll have some of the Fab Four, or what remained of them anyway. Your community, your station. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. And when the broken-hearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer, let it be. But though they may be parted, there is still a chance that they will see. There will be an answer. Let it be Let it be. 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 Let it be.
Let It Be by uh, the Beatles, of course. Uh, and you're listening to Kevin Markwick uh, on Uckfield FM. Uh, it's 1970. I don't think we were in flares by 1970. Yeah, I think we were. Uh, and 1970 was the year the Beatles split up uh, after a decade of incredible creative and popular success that changed pop music forever, of course. But you knew that. Uh, director Michael Lindsay Hogg captured those last moments in the documentary Let It Be, uh, released in 1970 as they recorded their last studio album. Uh, originally meant for television, it became a featured documentary. I think there was supposed to be a live broadcast with it, which went wrong or didn't happen, so they, they put it out in the cinema. Uh, I remember clearly watching it at the cinema in a double feature with Yellow Submarine, which is kind of optimistic Beatles and pessimistic Beatles. Um, Sadly, the film's not been available for many years. There was a VHS in the 80s, but nothing since. Maybe because the Beatles don't come out of it that well. Uh, there's John and Yoko, uh, sort of inseparable, and bust-ups, or at least terse words twixt um, McCartney and um, uh, uh, um, the other fellow. <laughs> uh, George Harrison. Oh, for goodness sake. Um and so maybe because they don't come out of it that well, uh, it shows some of the disintegration of the band, but it does contain footage of their last ever live performance on the rooftop of the Apple Building in January 1970, which that alone is uh, is worth having a look, uh, is get another chance to see it. Uh, there was talk of a reissue on Blu-ray, but sadly no sign of it. Uh, I'd love to see it again anyway. The long and winding road Disappear. I've seen that road before. It always leads me here. Lead me to.
the long and winding road, uh, which featured in the documentary Let It Be uh, in 1970, which, whilst you can't maintain that it, it, it actually documented the breakup of the Beatles, but um, there's lots of really interesting stuff in there if you really are a Beatles fan. And if you're a rock documentary fan, uh, such as I, because um, we've already done Woodstock earlier, which is one of the greatest uh, rock and roll documentaries, uh, and that one. And there were actually two other rock documentaries of note um, that year, um, funnily enough. Uh, the Disturbing Gimme Shelter, which follows uh, the Rolling Stones at the uh, Altamont Speedway, the free concert. Um where a young girl was stabbed and died during their performance of Sympathy for the Devil. Uh, it was a, almost like an anti-Woodstock, if you like. Uh, it feels actual um, uh, actual footage of the event. You don't see the, the, the young lady dying, fortunately, but the Hells Angels, who they apparently got in to do the security, which is extraordinary. Uh, and you've also got footage of uh, Jagger himself uh, looking at the footage of the event. It's a remarkable documentary, which I believe is still available on Home Entertainment, uh, uh, which came out in 1970. Uh, another one, actually, that's slightly uh, hagiography, but nevertheless uh, tremendously entertaining, uh, If is the 1968... Uh, or, sorry, is Elvis Presley's... Uh, it was called Elvis, that's the way it is... Uh, in 1968, Elvis Presley mounted a successful comeback, uh, which is also the subject of a documentary which uh, went out recently again in the cinema, uh, and then went on to start his long residency in Las Vegas. Uh, and Elvis, that's the way it is, is actually it's rather good. It captures Elvis at the peak of his Vegas period in 1970, before he went all sort of bloaty and started singing in Chinese restaurants, um, apparently. Uh, and I'm not, a, I, I can't lay claim to be a massive Elvis fan. Um, I used to like the films as a kid, but uh, this actually captures, uh, you can see what it is. And this, this is a rather good sequence. It's a rehearsal, actually, of That's All Right.
Kevin Markwick. You think he's gone? He's not gone. That's the whole point. He's never gone. Oh, well, there you go. That's it. It's pretty much over. Uh, we've got one more track, a bit of Jimi Hendrix coming up for you. But that is 1970 done with. I don't know. What did you think? Uh, hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Mark Quick. Let me know whether it works, doesn't work. Uh, or whatever, or you can go to the Facebook page, Kevin Markwick Show. Uh, find any number of ways to get home. I'm easy to find, you know? I'm the bloke from the cinema. Um, and actually, there were a few films missing that we didn't get around to. One of my absolute favourites, Five Easy Pieces, probably in my top five films with Jack Nicholson. Uh, we didn't get to that. Tora, Tora, Tora. Ryan's Daughter, which I think played the following year. We might get around to that next week. Uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula, that definitely played uh, in 71. Um, extraordinary bonkers stuff like entertaining Mr Sloan, little big man uh, and there's more Ken Russell the music lovers uh, Railway Children I believe played in 71 so we'll get around to it, we can't miss out on that one and uh, even more Hammer, Scars of Dracula uh, Vampire Lovers yes that freaked me out when I was a small child um, so I hope you've enjoyed it I've enjoyed it um, this was the first one so I didn't know how it was going to go I'm a bit rusty on the old fingeroos here with the with the dials and the buttons and the sliders but we've got 12 weeks to get it right together so please join me next week uh, for 1971 the one I picked out actually was the kind of it was almost like the start of the end was Dad's Army in April 1971 it was massive, and it was kind of the first TV spin-off. 2,190 admissions, 417 on Sunday, 643 on the Saturday, and Saturday was the last day of the week. But I'll explain all that next week. In the meantime, here's an absolute classic from 1970, uh, which he must have played at Woodstock. I'm pretty sure he did. And uh, it's Voodoo Child, and I'll see you next week, hopefully. And uh, and hello and goodbye, podcasters. Um, we'll, we'll catch up. Uh, this is Voodoo Child. I love you all. Bye. Bye.